Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Last Sunday where we left off in Genesis 50 and Joseph died at the age of 110 and at the beginning of Exodus, setting the context here, a new king has come to power, a new pharaoh, Uh, some time has passed. The Hebrews have grown in number uh, as they were supposed to, as God said they would. And uh, with this new Pharaoh comes the ignorance of who Joseph was and his special relationship to the Pharaoh in his day. And this current new Pharaoh is extremely threatened by the number of Hebrew people and how they have grown. Uh, and so because of that, um, he orders the, uh, well, the murder of all the Hebrew boys up to a certain age. And somehow, by God's grace and sovereignty, Moses escapes that uh, and ends up actually being adopted, that's chapter 2, into Pharaoh's family, and he is raised in the house of Pharaoh uh, till around age 40, where he witnesses the brutality of an Egyptian against one of the Hebrew slaves, and he kills that Egyptian. The next day, he goes out, and he, uh, not uh, thinking that no one saw, sees two Hebrew men fighting against one another. And calls out to them and tells them to stop. And with that, he hears these words, you're going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian. And suddenly he's found out. And so he runs and he leaves and he goes to Midian. And there in Midian is where God encounters his life. After about 40 years in chapter 3, God will speak to him from that famous burning bush. If you have your Bible with me, would you stand as we begin to read in chapter 3? starting in verse 1, and I'll finish in chapter, uh, verse 10. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't this bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from the land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The territory of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. 
Father, I pray that you will speak to us through this calling of Moses from the bush. Father, that we would remember that you are above us, you are in our midst, and that as you call, you will be with us. Father, what we do not know this morning, I pray you would teach us. What we are not yet, I pray you would make us for your glory and our good. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Ignorance of God is a serious thing. J.I. Packard in his book, Knowing God, if you have not read that, I would encourage you to pick it up. Go slow. It's Packard. You got to go slow. It takes a while to unpack Packard. But he wrote this in this book. Ignorance of God's ways and of the practice of communion with him lies at the root of much of the church's weakness today. The modern way with God is to set him at a distance, if not deny him altogether. And the irony is that modern Christians, preoccupied with maintaining religious practices in an irreligious world, have themselves allowed God to become remote. Churchmen who look at God, so to speak, through the wrong end of a telescope, so reducing him to pygmy proportions cannot hope to end up as more than pygmy Christians. Can you imagine? I cannot, but sitting in a deer blind, looking through the binoculars from the wrong end, and there at what seems like a great distance too far away for your rifle is the muy grande. I mean, he's the biggest one ever. And as you pick up your jaw and you say, I can't believe I finally saw him. I've heard legends. I've heard stories from my dad about the Muy Grande of South Texas. There he is. But he's too far away to shoot. Whereas if you had had the binoculars with the correct side, with the correct perspective, you would have seen that he's only 25 yards away. That's what Packer's getting at. We keep God at a distance, like looking at him through the wrong end of a telescope. Sometimes we can think that things like programs in the church or music styles or different strategies, um, discipleship strategies, evangelism strategies, uh, maybe the next greatest uh, megachurch pastor has just put a book out. Uh, maybe he's got a podcast. Maybe he's real popular on, uh, on uh, uh, Facebook or YouTube or something like that. His sermons are always trending, and he's been interviewed on Fox News and CNN for his take on certain things. Anyway, we, we can get so wrapped up into what we think is good, and, and with those, somehow, we get involved in a program. We get involved in something at the church, and we think, okay, this is God, and, and that's all we ever are is a program or strategy. We're never growing intimately with the Lord himself or actually getting to know him. Well, all of those things are, are good. It's not the best. Um, and, and if we just put all that we can know about God wrapped up in a program or a book uh, other than God's word, of course, 
That's all we're ever gonna be is whatever that author says. But there's so much more to knowing God. There's so much more to knowing God. And, and the, the threat, the real threat is, is that if, if we don't get to know him through his word and this abiding relationship with him, then we're gonna forget how big our God is. We're gonna forget how central he must be to our life. God's people have always faced a serious threat of forgetting just how big and just how important and central he must be. If you, as we read through the, the Old Testament this year, you will see times, Exodus is one of those times, the Judges is another one of those times where God's people forget. And because they forget, they live in disobedience. They're in fact, in this moment, in chapter three, they're enslaved to Egypt, and this is where Israel would end up if God had not remembered the promise that he made. The promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One pastor said it this way. He said, the prayers and cries of the people have gone up, and now God says, I'm coming down. That's exactly what's happened. Friends, our God is no small God, and Moses, as well as Israel and Egypt, including Pharaoh, are going to find out just how big he really is. God is going to reveal his name to Moses. He's going to tell Moses, I am who I am in this passage. Names are important in the Old Testament. They have meaning. They give meaning. They help describe something like an event. You'll remember when Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac and God provided a ram. There, Abraham named that location, the Lord is our provider. God is our provider. Yahweh, Yireh, he is the one who provides because of the ram, because that's what God did. Why is it important to know his name? Why is that such an important aspect of this particular story? Well, you gotta remember where Israel is. They're in Egypt. Egypt had a God for everything. If they had had Dairy Queen, they would have had a God to Dairy Queen. I mean, they had a God for everything. Every aspect of life, there was an idol, there was a name. The sun, the moon, everything had a name and everything had a God. And if you knew his name, you could define him. You could control him, all right? But our God's name is going to be I am who I am. More on that in just a moment. When you think about our day and time, there are people who like to try to define God for themselves. If I ask you to pull out a pen and paper and try to define God, what is your definition of God? That's exactly what we do. We try to define him as best we could. But have you ever met someone who said, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual? What does that mean? I told the early service, you go to Panjo's and get you a pepperoni pizza and have Scott Robbins with you to put some ghost peppers on it. You'll have a spiritual moment. <laughs> it may not be what you're looking for, but you're going to have some kind of spiritual moment. Maybe it's, I think God is like, fill in the blank. Sometimes what, <clears throat> what we're saying there is that I don't want anyone to tell me what God is like. I don't want anyone to tell me what to think about God. I'll decide for myself. I'll imagine him, hey, 21st century, him or her, in whatever way I choose. We can be in that category. When we're reading in Scripture and we come across a place where God is dealing with sin, like Sodom and Gomorrah, clearly see God's wrath poured out. 
We might not like the way that sounds. In fact, there are those that take stories like that out of Scripture, or they'll never cover it because it's just not the comforting God that we want to be around, right? Sometimes it's that we come across that God is just, and he'll execute that justice. We don't want to think about that day when he's going to be on his throne executing justice, and we have to stand before him. Maybe we don't like his sovereignty over life because that means what Job said is true. He gives life and he takes life. Either way, blessed be the name of the Lord. Maybe it's like we don't, we don't like his standards for holiness. We don't like him messing with our marriages. We don't like him messing with our families. We don't want him calling our children into ministry. We don't want him touching our family. We'll take care of them. It could be any number of things we don't like. So we make God, Tim Chester said, so we make God in our image and he becomes a fluffy God. A fluffy God. A God who suits our desires but cannot help us when we are in need. We think of God in the way we want to think of him. Fluffy God. The reality is, is that you are detached from reality. It's like thinking a horse is a two-legged animal. You can be certain in your own mind that a horse is a two-legged animal, but that doesn't change the fact that it is a four-legged animal. You can be certain of all the aspects that you think and know of God and define him the way you want, and that doesn't change the fact of who he really is and who God is of Scripture, that he is very real. In fact, what we find in Exodus 3 and 4 is that our God is a God who defines himself. He will not be defined by man. He will not be contained by a building. He will not be contained by a location. He is the God of creation. And yet he's intimately involved in creation. You see, in verses one through six, what we read already, we find there that God is over us. He is over us. You ever wonder if you have a wrong image or a wrong picture, well, we're not supposed to make an image or picture of God. If you have the wrong idea about God, or the wrong definition about God, if you can meet your God face to face, you might be in trouble. You noticed that when Moses heard to take off his shoes, he hid his face when he heard the Lord talking to him. There is this moment for Moses where he is understanding that this God that is calling out to him from the bush, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is a God that transcends the natural order. It's called transcendence, big theological word. You're welcome, that was free. Transcendence, that our God is above, greater than creation. He's also absolutely independent of it. Think back to your Greek mythology, okay? Poseidon, that name mean anything, right? Oceans, right? That's all, that's the only place he ever dealt with, okay? That, that's the difference. All of the Egyptian gods, as we'll see in the plagues, they all were bound by whatever they were over and nothing else. They didn't cross over, right? They lacked the power to do that, but our God is not like that. The God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not like that. And Moses is learning that now in this moment that our God transcends. He is above us. He is above his creation. 
And this is a very special moment set apart for Moses where he sees this bush on fire and yet this bush is not consumed. That means that God transcends the natural order, okay? Go out and set fire to a tree in your backyard and see if it's not consumed. We know someone up north of us yesterday was consuming something because I smelled it all afternoon. Fire consumes, but this fire was different. Something was different about this. And this is how God, how Moses knows that, hey, this, whoa, wait a minute. This is something special. He hears his name being called out. This fire is different because it represents God. It's not the last time we'll see God referenced with fire as it, it, with his presence referenced as fire. We'll know that there's a pillar of fire by night that will lead the people through the Exodus. We also know that there will be flames of fire above the apostles at the Pentecost moment. There we'll see. There's other times in Scripture where this is the case as well, but this bush is not burning up. And as he approaches, he hears God speak to him through the messenger. And then he says, Moses, take off your sandals. This ground is set apart. This ground is holy. This area, this space is holy. God's presence is there. Friends, that just simply tells us that this God, God is not like us. <laughs> he is holy. He is glorious. He is majestic. And we are not. And then he calls out in verse 6, Moses, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The natural response is to hide one's face. Why would you hide your face from God? Well, if you go to Isaiah 6, you'll see there, because Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. That means I've got sin, and I am standing before the holy and just righteous God. The only way that you or I could ever be accepted into this moment is to have our sin atoned for, paid for, and that, of course, happens at the cross. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus that he chose us, the church in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. That is the journey that we are on. That is our exodus, so to speak, that we are being moved from point A to point B. Point A to be is being dead in our transgressions and in our sins and our trespasses. Point B then is to be in Christ and to be like Christ in every aspect. And the journey along the way is that that sanctification, we'll get there in a moment. But just to know that this is why Moses is taking off his shoes. That represents the uncleanness, the sin in all of our lives. All right? So here is this moment that God is over us, and Moses sees that. Now also in verses 7 and 10, he's going to hear and know that God is in his midst. Look at verse 7 and 10. He says, I have observed. Listen to what God has been up to. Okay, so when we go from Genesis 50 to Exodus 3, that's a long time, at least a generation. It's a long time, okay? A Pharaoh has died. We got a new Pharaoh on board. The people of God, the Israelites, they're growing in number, but we're kind of missing some of the story between uh, the end of Genesis and Exodus 1, but we we don't need it. We know that God has been active, okay? We get a very short picture of what's been going on, but we see, starting in verse 7, that God has not been way out there in the cosmos somewhere with his hands off of his creation. No, no. He's been very active. Look what he says. The Lord said, I have observed. Hear the verbs of what God has been doing. I know about. I have heard. Then he tells Moses, I have come down to rescue. I have seen. I am sending you. Our God has been active. He has been in his midst. 
He has been in his people's midst. He's been with them the whole time. And what we learn of God is that not only is he over us, but he's also very concerned about the affairs of his creation, which means he is concerned about you. He is in our midst. He is among us. Our God made a promise to Abraham, continued it through Isaac and Jacob, and on down through the rest of the Old Testament, through the prophets, through the kings. And now he has sent Jesus. And one day he will send Jesus again. Then we will be called together to meet him in the air and to see him as he is. But God, in this moment, sees what has happened what is happening to Israel. And now is the time to act. And he will direct their path, their story, into the promised land. Transcendence was that first big word, the second word that's free also, free of charge, no blizzard needed, no payment. Imminence, imminence, write that down. It means that he exists or remains involved in creation. Transcendence above Not tied to it, eminence involved in creation. That's how God affects your life. That's how he works his change and his transformation in your life. Right? It's not enough just to believe that he exists. We can say, I believe in God or a God of some kind. But that God is not involved in my life. But Exodus 3 and 4 tell us a totally different story. It shows us that God, yes, is above creation, but he's also intimately involved in and with his creation. Not only is our God among us, but he also has revealed his purpose that he is going to bring his people out of slavery and into a place flowing with milk and honey, a place of worship, a place of witness, a place of God's power on Display. Friend, that is exactly what Christ has done for us. He was sent as a deliverer to take us out of slavery to sin, certainly with death before us, and transfer us, transform us into an eternal life, to receive that eternal life, into a life of worship and witness. The Exodus mirrors very well what happens with Jesus in our life. And then God revealed his plan. Moses, I am sending you, which brings us to the third thing this morning, that our God, he is a sending God. He told Moses, I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people out of Egypt. Verse 10. A sending God. Exodus 3 and 4 is, is a, uh, two chapters that, in fact, may be the most marked up in my Bible. I don't know. These, these two chapters play such a huge role in my life, have played a huge role in my life in, in how God has called me to the, to the place I am today. And when I, my wife, who God put in my life, before she was my wife, my girlfriend, showed me these two verses and said, dude, wake up. Because what's gonna happen is Moses hears this call on his life. I am sending you. But he has some questions. He has some objections. And he offers some excuses. The God who knows the needs of his people, the God who breaks in their story to save them, the God who does not change, the I am who I am, 
calls Moses a shepherd from Midian. Look at these objections. Verse 11. But Moses asked God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? It's an interesting question. Who am I? I have this little feeling of inadequacy out of his mouth, from his heart. Who am I that I should go stand before Pharaoh? Right? Well, okay, we could answer that. Dude, Moses, you spent like 40 years in his house. You should know what's going on. You should know Pharaoh. You should know everything about Egypt. Well, who am I? Who am I to go before the most powerful man on earth? Who am I to be assigned this task of freeing an entire nation of people that are enslaved? You know, that's a question that we, in our day and time, still struggle with. So many people today walking around with an identity crisis, not helped by social media, only confused us more. What are we to believe? What news channel do we believe? What article do we read that we believe? What book do we believe? What side of the story do we believe? It's led to the breakdown of our family. It's led to confusion in national identity. Even belief in a God that we can control, and thus we can control our own identity. We're the source of our own measurement. We don't pay attention to God's ruler anymore. It's a real struggle. Who am I, God, that you would call me to this? Who am I to go stand before Pharaoh? Who, who am I? Look at God's response in verse 12. He answered, I will be with you. I will certainly be with you. And this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Worship is always a result of God's work. But did you hear what God said? Moses, you're smart. You're kind. Moses, you're important. Gosh darn it, Moses, people like you. No, God didn't puff up Moses' self-esteem. He didn't say, Moses, go read a self-help. Nope. What he did was, dude, Moses, it doesn't matter who you are. I will be with you. Here's the sign. You're going to be back on this mountain, Moses, and you're going to worship me. Not just you, but all of my people. You will be here and you will worship me. That is the sign that I'm with you. He'll remember that very statement from the Lord when, in fact, Moses is there on that mountain with the people worshiping the Lord. Friend, if God is calling you, it does not matter who you think you are. If he's calling you to a task, well, if he's calling you to salvation, he's going to be with you. If he's calling you to sanctification, he's in it with you. If he's calling you to service, he's with you. Always. And it doesn't matter who you think you are because he is with you. You know, sometimes we start thinking we need to make the church known, but really we are to make Christ known. That is our calling. We are to make him known and make him known to the world. Moses, find your confidence. Moses, here's where your confidence is. Find your confidence in the fact that I am with you. Friends, that is exactly why Jesus pointed the disciples there about John 14 
when he was telling them he's about to go away and prepare a place for them. But in that chapter, he points them to the one who is to come. That's the helper, the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go away, boys. Don't be afraid, but I've got to go away. But there's another one coming, and he's going to help you. He's going to be with you. In fact, he is God's presence with us still today. Okay, next question. Verse 13. Okay, then. Um, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What should I tell them? Great question, Moses. Great question. What is your name? Again, the name means everything. The name is how we understand their abilities, their characteristics, and who they are. But here, God just kind of blows this up and says, Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. We say things like, I'm a dad. Um, I'm a teacher. I'm a pastor. I'm a banker. I'm an engineer. I'm an oil field worker. I'm a fisherman. I don't know. Does that work? I think that works. Yeah, they, 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 they work. What, whatever it could be. We're identified by, I'm a father of this. I'm a, yeah, okay, we get it. That's our identity. But God's name, I am who I am. Pronunciation of that is Yahweh. But I am, what does that mean? Well, it means that God is not defined by the things that define us. It means that he is who he has always been, and he will be who he has always been. It literally means I be who I be. It means he's not defined by time because it can be, it can be used to refer to a, a time in the past, a time in the present, or a time in the future. So we would translate that by saying, I have been who I have been. Well, he said he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know, because we've read through it, the God that he has been for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Calls to mind how he has acted in the past. It also can be translated or used by saying, I am now who I am. Okay? It's not defined by others, not defined by current situations, or even his relationships. I will be who I will be means that he has promised for the future, he has purpose for the future, and he has determined that future. And so we see in in that moment, the I am who I am means that you will not define me, you will not be able to control me, I am above all of creation, and yet I will be intimately and have been and am now involved in the affairs of my people. It means that I've been with you in the past. It means that I am a faithful promise keeper. It means that I am, de- I am the delivering God. I will deliver you. It is that I am the sending God. I have sent Moses and I am going to send Jesus. It is that I am the, the, the loving God, which is why he sent Jesus, because he loved the world so much. It is that he is the God who desires worship and he is the God who wins. He has been, he is, and he will always be. I almost hear God saying, Moses, I'm not a maybe baby. I am 
who I am. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are protected. Third one, what if they don't believe? Verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, what if they don't believe in your name or the fact that you've sent me or, or that you appeared to me? I mean, a burning bush that's not consumed, that's a little whacked out, God. All right, great. Moses, what is that in your hand? And he offers Moses three signs. It's not just for Moses, but it's also for the people, and it's for us today. What is that in your hand, those three signs? Listen, they, they're not tricks. They're real signs that God will use through Moses. The first one is the staff turned into a snake, turned back to a staff. The second one, Moses takes his hand, puts it in his cloak, pulls it out, it's leprous, puts it back, pulls it back out, it's healed. Third one, water into blood. All of those we will see again when he's before Pharaoh and the plagues during the exodus and the, the exit from, uh, from Egypt. But he did this so that they will believe that God had appeared to him, okay? These are the signs. That's what signs are always doing. They're making God known, all right? Now, the last one. He says in verse 11, Lord, I am not eloquent in my speech. I am slow to speak. That's actually verse 10. Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent either in the past or recently or since you've been speaking to your servant because my mouth and my tongue are sluggish. That was my excuse. If you could have seen me in my freshman uh, college speech class, it's awful. Much grace was given that semester. But we see what God's response is. Moses, who put that mouth on your face? Who gave man his mouth to speak? Who gave you eyes to see? Who gave you ears to hear? Now, Moses, look at the proportion I gave you. Two ears and one mouth. Moses, use them, use them in that manner. Two ears, one mouth. I will help you speak, Moses. I will teach you what to say. It doesn't matter that you're slow. Moses, I designed you exactly the way I wanted you. You see, and in that weakness of Moses, God is going to be displayed through that speaking. If anybody knows Moses and knows that he stutters or knows that he's slow of speech, when they hear him speaking on behalf of God, they'd be astonished that this God of the universe is using this man. To speak in such a way. It's not about Moses. It's about God's ability to use Moses and God's power through his life. And then Moses says, Lord, please send someone else. You ever done that? God, would you send someone to my neighbor? He's driving me nuts. He needs Jesus. Yeah, you're the one. And God's saying, you're the one. You're the one. Please send someone else. Almost can hear God back there saying, Moses, you're overcooking my grits, man. What about your brother Aaron? Aaron can speak. I gave Aaron the ability to speak well. He will help you. And so then Moses goes on, on his way back to Pharaoh. A couple of things in closing this morning. One is this, if God is calling you, not if, but when, when God is calling you, you will be confronted by his holiness. He's got a plan for that. But you will be confronted by his holiness. That we are confronted by the truth that, that God has not forgotten us. That he cares about us. But then you come before him and there's this burning bush moment perhaps. It's holy ground. 
holy ground before a holy God. How is it that a holy God uses sinful people to further his kingdom, to grow his kingdom, to to make disciples? How is that possible? It's called grace. He's holy. We need to remember his holiness and not take grace, take advantage of of his grace. But in Exodus 3, in this moment, Isaiah 6, those two great moments where there is a glimpse of God's holiness, holiness in the one who is in his presence, Isaiah or Moses, they are absolutely afraid. And then we get his name, the I am, that it's, it's significant because we are reminded that he does not change. He was, he is, and he will always be who he will be. And that this holy God calls us one into his kingdom, then to a process of sanctification, and then into service. And our only response is surrendering. That's the three ways God calls us. First one is salvation. We don't initiate that salvation process, but it is God who calls us to salvation. And this is in and through Christ alone and no, other, no one else. It's the primary reason God sent Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It is God's work that calls you. Not from a burning bush. That's unique to Moses. But he calls day in and day out. You hear his voice. Don't harden your heart. But hear what he has to say. The second process is sanctification. That's growing in Christ-likeness and growing in holiness. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's when he says, call to salvation is that call from, from coming out of slavery to sin and now being moved into Christ-likeness. It's that journey, that exodus again, if you will, to, to becoming more like Christ. You still got impurities in you, and he's still drawing them out through the refining process because our God is not only a consuming fire, but he's also a refiner's fire. And he's processing those impurities out of us. That's called sanctification. And in scripture, you are called to sanctification. That's a biblical, that is his will for your life, sanctification. Then he calls you into service. You ain't got to be all completely sanctified before he calls you to serve. But that seems to be the next step. Because God, uh, Jesus said, as my father sent me, so I am sending you. That he is the sending God, the equipping of the Spirit assures that his presence is with us as he calls us into service. Absolutely, God uses vessels that are completely inadequate. Completely inadequate. And as you see with Moses, God will use vessels that are weak and imperfect, but he'll use them by his power for his glory and our good. As Jerry Vines has said multiple times, God can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. And then if we start thinking, no, there's no way, you just got to remember that Paul burst forth into worship in Ephesians 3.20 when he said, now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. That's our God. The I am who I am. Finally, we need to remember that there is no task accomplished alone. God was with Moses, the Holy Spirit is with you. 
follower of Christ, we have each other, the church. We are called in scripture to love one another and to stir one another to love and good works. Let's be busy about our calling. If God is calling you this morning to salvation and right now in this moment, Andy's going to come and lead us in a time of response. I'll be here at the front. Some of our deacons will be here as well. I want to encourage you that if you're feeling that call, sensing that call to Jesus, that comes from the Lord himself, would you respond this morning? Come down and let me pray with you right here. I want to introduce you to him. If he is calling you to sanctification, you've got something in your life, you've got a sin in your life that you're not letting go of. He calls you to sanctification. He wants to work that in your life. He wants to bring you into holiness. Confess it this morning and let go of it. That's repentance. Confess it. The Bible says he will forgive you. He is faithful and just. will cleanse you. Let it go. And then if he's calling you into service, maybe that's on a ministry team. Maybe that's as a life group leader. Maybe it's as a missionary. I know there's a lot of you retired folks in here, and that's great. I'm glad you made it. He's not done with you. Do you know that you can go on the mission field in your retirement and serve the Lord? Some of you students and little kids in here, I was about age 12 when I first heard God calling me into ministry. I had no clue what that meant. You don't have to know. You just got to know he's calling you and say, yes, Lord, here I am. Maybe some of you are in the middle of a career and you think, okay, is this all there is? God's calling you. It can happen. I've seen it. You respond this morning. Surrender to the call.